Reducing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Martin Bouchard is an expert in social network analysis and using gang network information to understand how best to strategically tackle organized crime groups. In this episode, he provides a primer on understanding social network analysis and why it's useful. This is Reducing Crime. I'm your host, Jerry Ratcliffe, and welcome. In this episode, we are talking social network analysis of gangs and organized crime groups. Just as the summer started, I was lucky enough to be invited by Jacob Lindegaard Benson to open the European Crime Analysis Conference in Denmark. Not only was it a lovely chance to revisit the beautiful city of Copenhagen, but it also provided the opportunity to chat with Martin Bouchard. Martin is a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University, where he leads the Crime and Illicit Networks Lab. He's published extensively in the area of social organization of illicit markets, as well as the role of social networks in a variety of criminal enterprises. This includes understanding gang violence and the effect of gang affiliation on individuals getting into and out of criminal lifestyles. He received his PhD in 2006 from the Université de Montréal, or if you can't understand my awful French accent, the University of Montreal and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Maryland. Yeah, that one's a bit easier. He has worked with numerous government and law enforcement agencies in Canada and on Canadian organized crime groups. And in 2019, he received the Western Society of Criminology's Fellows Award for individuals who have made important contributions to the field of criminology. In our chat, you will discover about centralized and decentralized organized crime networks, what dyads and brokers are, and how police can use their understanding of networks to best target and disrupt gang and organized crime activity. He also touches briefly on the similarities with police corruption networks. That's what you'll learn. I learned that, apparently, my networking skills mean I have a bright future as a broker in an organized crime group. Yeah, read into that what you will. So, while other conference goers earnestly attended some really good sessions, it's a great conference, and I strongly recommend it, Martin and I sat down at the hotel bar, which, as you'll hear, worked out quite nicely indeed. You did a TED talk, didn't you? I did. I've never done one, but, and I've looked at these yeah. thinking, okay, they're, they're really quite impressive. It's impressive in the preparation that goes into it, and, and I didn't know any of it, but it was an eight-month process. And you have a TED talk community of other speakers that you meet once a week. Uh, you have coaches, you know, that listen to you every little bit of your talk. So you go three, four minutes at a time and they critique it. So I learned a lot oh about communication and the importance of every sentence and pauses and, and how to make it sound, you know, a little bit more interesting to a wider audience. It was a fascinating process. I never knew there was that much effort went into a TED Talk. Me neither. Yeah, I thought it was just, yeah, on a whim. Right. Uh, you're here, I'll you're write in a town. bit of a script, might practice a couple of times and yeah. just go for it. I'm in town, I'm in Vancouver, I'm in LA, I'll, I'll do the LA TED Talk, right? So no, there, there was a lot that went into it. Has it helped in terms of lecturing and teaching and presenting? Do you learn some skills in that way? Everything. And I'm also less shy about pausing, about taking my time, about finding the proper analogy. I don't rush into my speeches as much, I find. I probably make the same mistakes I always make, like we have our own little ways of speaking. But I did pick up an interest in making sure that I'm clear 
Right. And so I embrace sometimes the analogy, I embrace some explanations. You know, I don't fear the example, I don't fear taking my time. Interesting, yeah. right. Yeah, it, for college professors, one of the things that I think we're often bad at is communicating. It's not something that we're ever really taught well. No, we're not taught well, and we do it every day. And yet, you know, we don't get that much better because it's also something that you need to be trained on. And it's not because you do it that you do it well. You just redo the same thing over and over, right. typically, right? So some of us start at, on a strong level, I right. guess, of communication, but not all of us do that. And, and we're certainly not trained, as you said. It is depressing when you go and see a talk by one of the great big names in the field and you think, I'm really looking forward to this. Mm -hmm. And you love their written work and then you discover what an absolute disaster they are at just <laughs> presenting it. It's like, oh, oh shit. No. I know, and I'd rather, really I'd, I'd rather read them. I'd rather right, read them. Yeah. And, you know, that, Don't burst the bubble. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it happens all the time, of yeah. course. It's something our field has got to really sort of figure out at some point. Because here we are at a, what's largely really a policing conference. Mm -hmm. Communicating with a policing audience is very different than communicating with an academic audience. Absolutely. The message has to be different. The message has to be pitched different. And as academics, I think we have to overcome a degree of reticence on their part to necessarily pay attention to what we have. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they're not a captive audience in a classroom, for example. And in terms of academic conferences, like you can go into topics in, in all kinds of ways that are allowed just because it's other academics and we don't need to be that useful all the time. Or ever. Or ever. <laughs> but an audience who, who are here, you know, you'd rather communicate very clearly and in ways that they can sort of take home with them as well. I, and I don't know that I do this well, like to be clear. You really I do. I saw you to give a great presentation yesterday. <laughs> but I know that I pay, attention, I pay attention differently now. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Was academia always your thing? You grew up in Montreal, didn't you? I grew up in a small town in Quebec and then moved to Quebec City for my teenage years oh, okay. in Montreal for university. So I feel like I've lived everywhere. More on the everywhere. Says in Montreal. Montreal, yeah. uh, exactly. And so I identified to Montreal because that's where I spent my adult years before going to Vancouver. But I've, I've been all over Quebec in a very French part of Quebec as well. I, I only really spoke English in Vancouver, like on a daily basis or even before during my postdoc. But I did a French PhD at Université de Montréal. So all in French except the papers in the middle, but you had to have an introduction in French, a conclusion in French, and a dissertation defense in French as well, because it's a French university. How was that transition to then pretty much a full-on English-speaking world? It was exciting in many ways because uh, everything was new. I was also the French guy. I'm, I'm still the French guy everywhere in, in Vancouver, even after 16 years there. But I was just excited at that time to move away. Like, I loved Montreal. I probably wanted to stay in Montreal, if I'm honest, when I was there. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's it was a great city. Yeah, it was a strong pull. And I didn't think that the move away was going to be permanent the way it has been. Right. Are you seriously missing the winters there, though? Because they're not brutal. Not they are brutal. I'm not missing it, and I can still enjoy hockey. You know, <laughs> and I, I don't have to go through. And in Montreal, it's especially the, the parking. Parking your car in the middle of snowstorms, and that's sort of the worst of it. Good stuff. Yep. You, I mean, your area really now is social network analysis across the board. Has it always been that? Where did, when did you get into that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I feel like, like I almost want to say yes because it's been so long and it's always been intertwined with my research. But if I'm looking back at my PhD, there was no social network analysis. It was analysis of police databases in terms of drug markets. So how many people are selling drugs? I've been involved designing methods to estimate the size of illegal populations. And the goal was always to find the denominator. 
Right. So how many people there are so we can understand how much law enforcement pressure they receive. Fundamentally, it's a hidden figure. Nobody in a drug transaction wants to report this to the police. So it, yes. it, it does remain this ultimate challenge to some degree, doesn't it? Exactly. So I was driven by, you know, solving that, that puzzle. And did you? In some ways, like, you know, you, you have statistical models that you're trying to approximate the size of the population, but you never know if you're right. But there was, it was a very networky topic because behind the scenes we were studying criminal organizations. That's what we were trying to do. So how much are criminal organizations involved in drug markets? What are their risks of being arrested compared to independent dealers? So there was already that attempt at trying to figure out how to count and to work with police data in order to make a difference between organized crime and not. And from there, uh, I had a mentor, Carlo Morselli. Passed away recently. Passed away recently. Very young too, it was very sad. The, the most sad event because he was so loved by so many people. So when he was in Montreal, he was probably the most prolific supervisor. So, so many graduate students worked with him and under him. And so it was a shock, especially at his age and how you know, active he was otherwise. And a great, great, great mentor. He really allowed so many people to express themselves in research. So, so you guys at, at University of Montreal were really in, in the pioneering forefront to developing what has now become social network analysis. Because it really wasn't a thing before then. It was then. not. It, it, was not it, a, it it's almost appeared out of nowhere, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly like 9-11, right? <laughs> it, like these sorts of events. <laughs> there's an but analogy, it, right? There's an analogy, and, and I'm saying this for a reason too, but events like 9-11 and having someone like Valdis Krebs who published a paper on the network of hijackers a few months after the event. Because social network analysis has been around for 50 years before it's been around in criminology. It's just never made its way. So were the tools around at that point? The tools were around. It was just not in criminology. Right. We were just late so other, other to the party. Okay, so which other fields beat us there? I want to see business, you know, management was big, like looking at uh, boards of business owners, directors, and how they are intertwined, you know, to understand innovation in business, for example. Mm -hmm. It was always in anthropology, sociology, that's where it was born. And I started paying attention, you know, when people like yourself, and there were some other early adapters, people like Gisela Bickler, Eileen Marm, Andrew Papakristos, started publishing all this stuff and it appeared on the criminology field, seemed almost out of the blue, but then here you were doing this really fascinating work, plus all the tools were available as well. It seemed perfectly timed that, yes, and you had the explosion in police recorded data, which helped feed into all of this. It all seemed to coalesce really nicely. Yeah, it's, it's the perfect storm. And because the tools were already there, right. it was, there were no obstacles there. Uh, in the 1990s. Somebody in the bar is eventually going to start <laughs> wanting to test bells or something I mean, like that. We're uh, going to have a foghorn test in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's making me thirsty, uh, <laughs> certainly. And I wonder if we can get served a, a beverage. Actually, that's not a bad idea. Do you, yeah. want, a bit? Do you want a beer? We could ask. We could, yeah. Please excuse the small interlude at the moment in the recording here while Martin and I availed ourselves of the services of the bar. Anyway, cheers. Cheers. Yeah. I think it's Danish, but it's Danish IPA, so it's actually bearable. It is pretty good. <laughs> Let's go back to where we were yes. <laughs> interrupted for having a beer. Um, tell me about the gang side. What has social network analysis allowed us to learn about how gangs operate and be successful? 
what I found early on is, uh, you know, sometimes with organized crime and gangs, the whole thing is a conspiracy, and a conspiracy is a social network. Well, you There's know, they're batshit crazy conspiracy theorists. So I <laughs> love the fact that you said that. They really. It, just, it's true. It's like oh, it's no. a different context, of course. But because it's a conspiracy, it doesn't have any, anything that holds itself. There's no glue other than the social relations in the conspiracy. They're talking. They're planning. So it's fascinating that all of this is happening as a social network. And so we need the, the simple method to analyze this. That's the only way, in a sense. That's not the only way, but that's a very important way to understand it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we study gangs and organized crime sometimes as a sort of box uh, that's very flexible and rigid and it has 10 members, this gang, uh, this other one has 15 and 20, but everybody who works on gangs knows that it changes all the time. Like it's very fluid, it's it flexible. Is, yeah. And here's a method, social network analysis, that allows you to bring on that flexibility and provide an answer that can change over time. I think it's often a misconception that people have that organized crime groups or gangs are rigidly hierarchical organizations with membership numbers and cards and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the, the gangs that, you know, I've helped the police in Philadelphia study, it's kind of groups of corner boys who knew each other at school and people kind of drift in and out. Yes. And whoever's the kind of top dog is whoever managed to get hold of some drugs that they can sell that week, you know, and it's, yeah. you know, and then next week he's got nothing, it's somebody else has got something. It's, it is incredibly fluid fluid and organic, as you mentioned, especially when it starts. Of course, even the organizations that have some kind of hierarchy, it does not function necessarily as a hierarchy. A paper presented at this conference where there was no prediction by rank of who was connected with whom or who was friends with whom. It's literally another mechanism that's at play. So this method allows you to, to get into this and to be able to describe a little bit closer to how they actually function, which is basically through social relationships and who you like and who you know, who's close to you. You have a gang of 20 people, you don't work with these 20 people, you work with four, five, six. And this matters because you're in that cluster of the larger gang on the east side or the west side, but you don't necessarily work or know the west side of, of the group. So now you can describe this. One of the things I have noticed though, you tend to have this whole language around social mm -hmm. network analysis that I think a lot of people sometimes are not familiar with. Use terms like dyads and brokerage and things like that. What do these kind of things mean? Yeah, well, a, a dyad is the basic element of a social network. It's not drinking then? It's not drinking, oh. no. It, it could have been, it should be. It's the basis of most of my social networks. <laughs> it's the foundation of everything here. Yeah. Welcome to academia. Exactly. Yeah. It's really the unit of analysis, and, and that's the difference. Like for some people, for, for academics who you know work with data sets and, and standard data sets, each line is one respondent in a survey, for well, example. But or, not in SNA. But in SNA, the unit of analysis will be two people. If there's a line that you see visually in a network, this line is made of two nodes, two people that are connected. So any line in a data set for social network analysis will be two people. That's what starts everything, and that's the basic of what a social network is. Can you qualify that depending on whether it's family or tribal or if we just meet socially or uh, you, yes. can, can you change the nature of what that relationship is? Does that help you understand yeah. kind of organized groups? Exactly. And when you study gangs and organized crime, you realize it, it's fascinating and complex because, you know, that's not all they do. They do all kinds of things together. They socialize with many of them, but they don't socialize with all of them. So social network analysis just allows you to classify that so that if you want to study the social relationships and the friendships within a criminal organizations, you can. You can filter out the criminal relationships. And if you want to study just the co-offending, you can as well. And what is brokerage? 
You talked about that yeah. yesterday. We use these terms outside of, of social network analysis. And, and when we hire a mortgage broker, for example, it's just someone who's there to facilitate a transaction between two parties. Right. And so that's the idea here. But in social network analysis and organized crime, we'll, we'll use the broker to describe someone who's in between two gang members or two gangs or two factions and serve as the bridge between. So that broker will be in contact with at least some members on the left side in, and also in contact with you know, members on the right side. But he's the root, he's the conduit between these two factions or these two people. And when you are that person in between, well, you get a lot of power from this. You know, you're the one basically receiving the information, receiving the, you know, the money, receiving the drugs and getting it to the other side. You know, from network theory and everything that we know about networks, these positions come with power of information, you know, power to act, doing something on, on one side that the other side would not learn about, for example. Like you can use it for good or for bad reasons uh, if you wanted, but you have some control. So as you have larger and larger networks, you have more and more of these brokers. Or you're the pathway between more and more people. And if you're the unique, the only one, the only pathway between these two people, well, you get a lot of points in social network analysis. So if my career goes south, <laughs> it's always possible on any, any given day, um, and I decide to join an organized crime group, if I'm more social, if I more interact with people, so that's going to be of material benefit to me? Absolutely. The social butterflies that are accepted, so social butterflies, not the annoying ones, but the ones that people want to meet, uh, the people who have social capitals. It's not just how many people you know, but it's also an ability, an ability to manage your social relations. That's what social capital is. So it's not necessarily how many connections you have on LinkedIn, because those are largely with people you've never met and have no uh -huh. idea, but it's, is it some to degree the quality of those connections? Absolutely. What they can bring to the criminal business? Yeah, and if you would get something out of it, means that they want to work with you. So and you have to bring some, you have to bring bring some yeah. capacity. Exactly. You have to be able to do something. To do something and to be agreeable enough almost and trustworthy that they want to collaborate with you. And it's not a given. It's not because you're there in the gang or of the group that people will want to work with you. Right. So you may know people. It's not that I can connect you with you know, a bunch of other academics, but I could connect you with people who have got skill sets in the organized crime world, like money laundering and those kind of skills. Exactly. They need to bring something to the table and they put themselves in these positions also by virtue of having these quality contacts in the construction industry, for example, because they have these capacity, for example, to win a construction bid for the criminal organization in order to get some money laundering going. So there's all kinds of ways in which this social capital manifests itself what we found, what my colleagues found in all kinds of research, whether you know, avoiding arrest, making money, having a long career, the people who are better at managing their social relations are almost always getting ahead. You say career in organized crime, but I kind of feel like academia is a career in organized crime because I'm certainly obtaining wages by deception. It's not like I'm earning them. <laughs> well, you use everything you can. That's right. Uh, yes. You also said the other day that it was interesting, you didn't it, a comparison between the centrality of biker gangs, wasn't it? Yes. There were some that were very, sparse isn't the right word, but I think decentralized. They seemed to have little groups all over the place with a few people who did the connections, connected groups to one another. Mm -hmm. and, other, and another one that was just a sort of core group in the middle who connected to everything. Did I interpret that right? Yes, no, I, you did. Uh, so it, rarity, was indivi it was individuals, it. but there was a, a chapter, right? So it was all different chapters of the biker organization connected through sometimes very important individuals who were the brokers. They were sometimes the only representative 
of their chapter in the data set that was making the connection to the rest of the organization. So that brings a lot of power. So everyone on their right side, for example, needs to go through them in order to get anywhere. Oh, so they're like this narrow bridge that yes. everything has to filter through. If, you, yeah. if one group has drugs and they want the other group to sell on the street or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and it creates a lot of power to these bridges that, you know, especially when they're unique. So all throughout the organization, you have some people that have these roles. Often you can say, well, they may not even know that they are this bridge. Like we're calculating these network metrics sometimes and we know more about their power than they may know themselves. But I do believe that most of the time, there's a reason why they are in this position and that they're able to exploit it. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to use this from a policing perspective. Mm -hmm. right? Do you go for gangs that are more centralized? Are they easier to disrupt? Or do you go for more decentralized or less centralized gangs? Well, you, you can go for any of these based on, on your priorities. Like if one of them was involved in violence and your organization was like it had a public safety component, of course you would have to go for the most violent one. Right. But the fact that they are decentralized or centralized will affect how many resources you would need to put into this operation in order for it to succeed, like to get real disruption. I got the sense that you were saying that a decentralized group is easier to disrupt or interdict into? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, so a decentralized group will be easier to have an impact on with a random target, if you will, because any target in a decentralized network will be a decent target. In a centralized network, what that means is that there is one player, there is one gang member that is bringing all of the attention, you know, all of the connections. They consolidate all consolidate the power. Consolidate all of it. So if you can pinpoint to that individual or that gang, bingo, you have it. Right. You can disrupt this network very easily. But most of the police operations, if they operate a little bit more blindly, will have more success having some disruption in a decentralized context because any one of their random targets will be decent. Okay, you can't destroy the whole organization, the whole conspiracy, but you can take out some bridges. Yes. You want to look for the bridges? I think that that's the most powerful way to disrupt. My colleagues and I, we looked at all kinds of metrics in which you can look at cohesion and reach. Like, is this network losing its ability to function in terms of people going from one person to another? Ultimately, it comes down to betweenness centrality, to that brokerage, like looking at these bridges, because that, you know, the analogy of the network being a roadmap, you know, that the sort of the fact that the spatial, you know, language is in there is, there, you know, it's not random, like that's the way it was built, you know, early on. So it's a route, it's a roadmap, basically, and you can navigate through it. So if you cannot have these bridges, you cannot cross to the other side, you know, you cannot go south, basically, you're stuck where you are. And so when that happens to criminal networks, the distribution of these drugs is affected. You know, in theory, this is the way to go in order to slow down criminal activity, not necessarily to stop it, but to slow it down. Bizarrely, the analogy works exactly because years ago, I was an officer in the reserve army in the UK and I was an engineer officer. And one of the things that we trained on was how to blow up bridges, the idea to stop a Russian advance across <laughs> Europe. And bridges, of course, are this wonderful opportunity. You take out a bridge, mm -hmm. you're not stopping the advance, but you're really slowing it because you're forcing the opposition to take a longer and more tortuous route to go 20, 30 miles upstream or downstream to find another bridge. But that becomes 
um, less valuable if all you have is bridges everywhere. Exactly. And that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, that's great. Is there a way to use these models to then actually measure if you're actually having an impact? Because so much of what we're interested in doing with evidence-based policing is sort of saying, okay, if we do this, we hope to get this result. Can we actually measure the impact? Can we measure disruption in terms of how the network changes after some kind of interdiction operation? Uh, yes, we can. And that's the goal. That's what everybody should be thinking right now. And the fact that it's a data set that is set in time and space so that you have an operation that you can date. Mm. So you can look at the before and the after, just like any project where you have data on violence before and after an intervention. So it's the same thing with networks, but the metrics that you follow will be a little bit different. What matters is how much can they reach each other or not is, is truly important, especially with drug trafficking as they change countries. Like how difficult is it to bring these drugs in after we've lost our contact in Colombia? If you had one bridge yes. that enabled you to bring drugs into from one country to another, if you lose that bridge, yes. how long does it take to reestablish a new trusted network? Exactly. Because you're not just using arrest data, are you, and who gets arrested with somebody else? I mean, you've got a whole range of other data sets, right? You can bring in any data set that you can match with the people who are in the networks, so their characteristics or attributes. Once we know who's part of that network, you can triangulate with other data sets and try to bring in more information on these people from other sources if you have them. Telephone conversations? Telephone conversations would be one way to map a network of phone calls, for example. And it's a fascinating way of, of doing it because you, you have direction. Like sometimes you look at these phone calls and in social network analysis, we pay attention to who calls whom. And because if you think about this in terms of a roadmap that you're trying to navigate, then it can only go from the caller to the person being called. It doesn't go the other way around necessarily. So the route is only going one way. So would you be looking more for people who make more outgoing calls? It depends, so, you know, because the receiver could be, you know, the person starting the whole thing, right? So when you make the phone call, this is when the drugs can be distributed. This is the green light. But it does bring to light that you know, the person receiving the phone calls will get different metrics. It will look very different depending on what you look at in the network. So their in degree, so their popularity receiving a lot of phone calls will be higher. Right. But their out degree, so their capacity to generate network contacts will be less. And then it's a matter of interpretation. Like sometimes it means more power to the in degree, you know, to the person receiving. And sometimes it's more power to the person starting the process. And that's why you always need that context. You need that intelligence. You need people in the field to tell you a little bit of what's going on here. Right, so that's important. So the analysis is not enough on its own. You, no. need, you also need criminal intelligence. Mm -hmm. I've said this a few times. Crime analysis tells you what's going on. Criminal intelligence will tell you why. Exactly. Okay, and so this work can't be done on its own. It really has to be supplemented with insider knowledge. Insider knowledge, and you can bring it in the network and or in the interpretation of the network. And it's key because you can have police data sets with an algorithm and just run it through and have network metrics and interpret this, you know, because you'll find central people. But these people may be central for a reason that's completely unrelated to something that's relevant to the law enforcement agency or even to the organization itself. So you have to be able to work through what's really going on with someone who knows what's going on. But I will say that the blind analysis of networks without knowing anything about it has a role. I love to go and, and come in not knowing anything about the network, doing my analysis, trying to interpret you know, and make projections, but then confront these interpretations with real, the real meaning. 
you're saying it's helpful to have people who can help interpret the crime analysis it isn't the end of the analysis it's the start of really thinking about this exactly I mean uh, if you don't have you know a person telling you about the substance of these relationships like you, you really have only metrics and you cannot go that far with only right. metrics and it happens often because you have sometimes consultants or academics coming in with no knowledge of the scene the drug markets the gangs that are operating you need that prime analyst that police officer investigators who, who bring you that knowledge of context. the field, that context, you need both. You, know, you need both, and sometimes we can come in at different times. So I like to do a blind analysis without knowing anything because I'm not biased by any preconceived notion. Right, you're not coming into it with a predetermined plan for how the analysis is going to go. You're just exactly. going to get the network unfold exactly. organically. Exactly. Little Johnny is the leader, and if I know this, then I'll pay more attention to Little Johnny as opposed to pay attention to the network as a whole and the data, and then having this discussion. So it's actually helpful not to know who, say, the gang leader is or who is perceived to be the gang yeah. leader. You I just come in, let's see if, that's, if, the, if the model establishes that. Exactly. I, f I feel there's a role for this as well, but we cannot do without that's, that knowledge in the end. Yeah, and increasingly I worry about that as we have more and more open data, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But we also get more and more people coming into the field with no experience of the field and from other disciplines like computer science or whatever, if, mm -hmm. you know, never sat in the back of a police car or never, you know, spoken to a police officer, trying to come up with some deep insights from this and, mm -hmm. and crashing and burning a bunch of the times, I think. It happens. I, you know, I work with computer scientists. I love the skill set, right? It's, yeah. it's something that we probably need in, oh, the, sure. in the field. But, you know, with us trying to crash into a different field, like we need some help. You gave a presentation that said that, and this is something I found really counterintuitive. So I've done some work in Central America. In, in many parts of Central America, you rise to be the, the kind of the head honcho in the gang by having a reputation for being the most violent. And yet what you were finding in biker gangs in Canada was the reverse of that, that being engaged in the, on the violence side of it wasn't exactly career enhancing. It was not. And you're right to bring this into you know, the South American context because it may be very different in, in different parts of the world but when you talk about a, a biker organization that's really a business organization at this point like many of them own car dealerships and grocery stores so they're the business beyond just drug dealing then exactly no I mean but the business aspect is so important and what happens is that because we have a range of people in this organization we have prospects hangarounds we have younger bikers as well what we found is that those who have this, this prior history of violence do not tend to be promoted as fast. And sometimes they're basically boxed in, you know, they're stuck in the that stereotype role. Stereotype as the muscle. Exactly. They're the muscle. That's what they do. And sometimes there's a reason why they do this, because they're good at it. Or sometimes they just don't have the other skills. Like we were talking about social capital earlier. Yeah. That's what the organization ultimately is looking for in terms of its promotion and, and those who will get full patch memberships a little bit quicker. It's fascinating work that I've done with Alicia Gern, a graduate student who studied promotion in the Hells Angels using uh, survival models. You've got all these different characters going on. You mentioned a couple of them, prospects, hangers-on. What's the difference between those within the gang? Well, it starts with being a, a hang-around. If you have any status within you know, the Hells Angels organization, you're going to be a hang-around. Before that, you'll be an associate. You'll be around the gang. Maybe they know you. But at one point, even the hangaround is a status. It means you do work with them, you know, in some capacity. So they trust you. They'll bring you they in for a job you. or two. And You'll be invited to parties. You'll be doing maybe menial jobs for them, you know, especially at this stage. And we can start to see this in the data? 
you can start to see this in the data. Social network data in terms yeah. of what, phone calls or? In terms of them being seen with the organization in the data. So, so you might have surveillance records. Exactly, surveillance records, but you know, the data that we used in this case is police events. So we have people being pulled over for a traffic stop. You know, each time they are ID'd because their motorcycle is parked you know, in the wrong place, they'll be in the data set. So we have all kinds of information like this. But we tend not to use the biker events because it just masks everything because everyone at these parties or these big events, they're all connected to each other. They're like, there's no network variations in these events. So I, I tend to keep them out. Interesting. So there's some data that you don't actually want because it's just more noise than value. It's more noise because, it, you know... More noise than signal. Exactly. You know, you know, it's the same when there's no variation in a variable in, in a model. Well, it's not a variable. It's a constant. If violence doesn't work, what, what are the skill sets that... <laughs> I'm going to join a biker organization. Uh, it's <laughs> it seems like it. But I feel, I feel the, it's a the, good sign to this, think... This future career, right? I'm, actually, <laughs> I'm now planning it instead of as a... It's not my fallback anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, no, but it's, it's a good sign to be thinking that way. And I don't know which speaker uh, in, in this policing conference mentioned this. I think it was Alex Murray. And From West Mercia Police, the yes, dep exactly. Deputy Chief Constable. That, yeah. Exactly. Let's plug it in. Epi episode number 64. Oh, like 30-something <laughs> or other. Yeah, he's, he's seen way back. That was, he was a podcast guest. Exactly. Yeah. But, but there was this quote about thinking like criminals, basically, like going inside their minds. So I think it's a good sign that you're thinking that way because it allows you to have the empathy sometimes to make the right calls and understand their decision-making, not from your perspective as an academic, but from theirs, like what makes sense in their world. So I don't need to be the most violent. I just, no. I, it, it's the connections that will help me promote within the, the organized crime group? Well, if they want to break into academia, these Hells Angels, well, they, get, they got the perfect candidate if you come in because you'll be the ultimate broker between all of us in academia and in policing and their organization. But you can imagine when they connect with, with the business associate who's connected to construction industry, right. for example, like the kind of value that they bring. So these guys are promoted a little bit quicker. There's a lot of patch over with the biker organization. So when someone comes in another city, another province in Canada, they bring a lot of contacts that are of value to the organization. They tend to get through the ranks a little bit faster as well. And you were able to spot this through the data analysis that you've exactly. been doing. Exactly. Yeah, just following the trajectories of 154 of them for 12 years of data. Like some of them were already full packed, so we can't study which, their promotion. They're already in. They're already in. In and done. Yeah. But we had about 65 people that had a promotion. It's sometimes two. Like they went from, from hang around to prospect, from prospect to full patch. So we could see their whole trajectory. And in almost all cases, it was who they knew and how many that matter and not violence. Interesting. I mean, it's really fascinating. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How have police used this? in all kinds of ways in thinking about disruption. The law enforcement agencies I've worked with in British Columbia, what they learned is that when you apply a network approach, you find a lot of what you already know matches the analysis. So of course, the gang leader is, is gonna be the gang leader, is gonna be maybe all over the data. But that's not a bad thing. That's it, not a bad it, thing. It reduces uncertainty. Exactly. It, it gives you more confidence in what you know. Exactly, it's like our control variables in any regression models. It's, it's what we know. Oh, now we've lost everybody, but yeah. <laughs> but you know. It, you it, said the R word. The R word, but, it, but it's, it, it's the controls are, are so important because that's what we know about something. Yeah. But there's always uh, surprises in the data set. And that's where it comes in useful because law enforcement agencies who use it, who work with me, don't want to forget the important people. And they know 
they know they'll have their biases and they'll overlook people. It's like sometimes they smile and they laugh like, no way, there's no way that little Johnny should be on our radar. And yes, little Johnny brings something to the table. Little Johnny shows up in every event that the leaders show up. As low level as he is, he is plugged in with everyone at the top. So what makes that really interesting is that, not so much for the interdiction, but it sounds like little Johnny being so well connected is a wonderful target to turn to become a confidential informant. Absolutely, you got it right. So some of the work that we do as well is in identifying suitable candidates, candidates for to be informants. And that's really important because we've got to go away from this model that arrest and prosecution is the only way forward. And sowing disruption Mm-hmm. within an organized crime group is, you know, anything that interrupts actually the harm that they commit on the community yep. it, in different ways. And I, I think disruption is one of the areas that is really underdeveloped within policing these days. And it's some of the only ways to find out anything about these organizations is to have informants, right. like to have like an, someone inside. It could be a wire, but it all could also be an informant. Uh, in a lot of this, you're talking about people having social capital. Mm-hmm. You've also talked about human capital as being distinct from social capital. What do you mean by that? Well, human capital is our basically our skill set, like what we bring to the table in terms of education, what we know, you know, to do, basically our skills. Okay, so that's just inherent in me. Well, the human capital element is me, but the social capital is through someone else, like it's through my social relationships that I can get something else. When we were talking about the ability you know, to use your social networks, I don't have all the skills, but someone that I know has these skills or these resources. So can I reach out and, you know, to them in order to get access to this? So that social capital, every time you need someone else for a skill set, a resource, it's going to be social capital. But human capital is within you. So I might have a skill set in being able to set up encrypted networks for telephones and things like that. So you came to me for this. For the skill set. But my social capital will be, I can connect you with people who can do that, who can do money laundering, who can run financial systems, set up bank accounts. Exactly. So I may have no skills except for who I basically drink and party with. Exactly. And, and is that, that more useful? Please tell me it is. Please. <laughs> it's, it really, is. it's the only skill set I have. Yeah, I, I think it is more useful. And the person coming to you for, for your skill set is using their social capital, you know, in that instance. But I find that it's a skill set that's completely overlooked. Your capacity to identify the proper people to help you accomplish something. To so be a dr- connector. Exactly. To be the connector is something. Some of this work is also looking at corruption within policing networks. Mm-hmm. Depressingly, it's going to be finding the similar things, isn't it? It's so similar. It, and we sort of knew... All and, the critical and expect- criminologists at this point are all nodding away. Yes, yeah. I mean... And it's the work of Mary Ouellette, Sadaf Hashimi, Jason Gravel, Andrew Papacristo. Like, all of this uh, was uh, is just fascinating. But some of the parallels that they find in, in these networks, it's truly fascinating because it's the same sort of size of the crews. It's the same clustering within the police misconduct networks as we see the clustering in gangs for example so it's not necessarily a bad apple you just get a bag of apples within the whole barrel this <laughs> exactly and, and the social contagion phenomenon is are, is happening in the same way if you're exposed to police corruption you're more likely yourself to be involved in the future so we're not surprised because that's based on social theories that have been around for decades But at the same time, to find it so clearly represented in police corruption network data, that's the fascinating part that people don't expect. 
If people want to learn more about this, where's a, where's a good starting place? Gisela Bickler published a, a really good book focused on criminal networks. It's called Understanding Criminal Networks. Carlo Morselli published in 2009 a book called Inside Criminal Networks. It's, sometimes it's available for free through Springer, but otherwise there's all kinds of training. I try to give training myself as much as I can. Well, I appreciate you spending some time with me. We should, uh, we should finish up this beer and then go and rope a couple of other people into it and expand our social network. Exactly, that's what we're doing. It's the snowball. Cheers, yep. mate. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. That was episode 65 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Copenhagen in May 2023. If you teach, you can DM me for transcripts and spreadsheets of multiple choice questions for every episode. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime or Jerry underscore Ratcliffe, but if you subscribe, they'll be delivered straight to your preferred device. Like this podcast, subscribing costs nothing. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>